Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. Profile Theater is a theater company located in Portland, Oregon. Profile Theater centers the season around a season-long featured writer. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. Community Profile is an affinity space built around the structure of a free writing workshop. Participants in Community Profile meet, write, support, share, and bear witness to other people who may have walked a mile in their shoes. In Community Profile, we feature writers who have won awards and had numerous books published, as well as writers who are making their first foray into expressing themselves on paper. The result is writing that is singularly personal, provocative, powerful, moving, funny, tragic, beautiful, and that encapsulates the entirety of the human experience. What this podcast does is give those writers, those creators, a chance to share their life stories and their writing in a public forum so that we can celebrate and appreciate victories that have been won and challenges that have been overcome by people whose lives you may recognize or be experiencing for the very first time. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. I'm here in the apartment of A.C. Ramirez de Arellano, one of the really up-and-coming artists in the Portland art scene. Um, AC, good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. How was your uh, winter so uh, far? Pretty cold. Yeah? Pretty cold, yeah. I'm a Caribbean amphibian, so... No, I didn't know that. It's harsh for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and you were telling me a story about Christmas and how... You're all, you've all of a sudden been commandeered into, into celebrating <laughs> yeah, this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my daughter usually, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're two co-parenting households that, that she's between. And uh, Christmas is done in the other household. I am not a big fan of the, the noise and the consumerism and the plastic and all that. So... Um, yeah, that's all handled there, and, and it works well, I think, for everybody. I'm really happy about it. But my daughter's seven now, and she has her own opinions. <laughs> you know, it's, Who knew? Yeah, it's funny. You bring them into the world, and they're sweet and little, and, and you, know, you do everything for them. And then they develop an opinion right around two years old, and, and they tell you how it's going to be. So <laughs> a couple weeks ago, my daughter announced that we would be celebrating Christmas. Um, she went to the store with a friend of mine, and she bought a potted tree and a pot and a wreath for the door, like with her own money. She's got like a hundred and eighty bucks, right? The kid's got more cash on hand than I do. <laughs> and uh, so she bought this, and she brought it home, and she went and she got these these Pokemon cards and some pipe cleaners, and she created ornaments because like we don't have this stuff, right? She got some of her plastic beads and, and beaded up some stuff and, and put it on the tree. So it, it looks very, um, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas tree-ish. It's, it's fluffier, but it's cute. Um, but then she announced to me that I will be buying her a bike for Christmas. Um, like, there's not, it's not enough time because <laughs> like we're, we're still in a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And so... And it's, it's not necessarily easy for me to get around anyway. And so I wasn't able to find something online that I could trust was going to arrive by Christmas. I managed to go to the local store 
And uh, well, I, I checked online and one of our local stores had uh, a bike that was in her size. And a friend of mine raced over there and picked it up. So I've got that hidden in the back bedroom. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if she's aware of it or not. She might not care. She just sort of, she's a Scorpio man. She just, she speaks and she expects me to just listen. And... It's so funny because I, I only ever see the super sweet side of Birdie. She is, yeah. she is super sweet. Yeah. But she's also super sweet and Dad, we're celebrating Christmas, and you're buying me a bike. That's that's hilarious. Yeah, you know, she's very sweet about it. But yeah, she's she's the boss. Yeah, right, she's the boss. That's going to serve her well later. Absolutely. Yeah. So AC, um, uh, we met what? Not even a year ago. Is that right? Was that that was because earlier this year, and we're, yeah. we're towards the end of 2021. That's funny because it seems like. It seems like it, it was more like we've known each other for a couple of years at least. Yeah. And I guess that's because it's been um, like a, a series of projects in a row. Mm-hmm. And each of those projects um, had to be coordinated around the pandemic. And we thought that we were coming out of it. And then the Delta variant came around and, and we had to pull back on ideas and and just sort of navigate it felt like navigating a new path every every right. week like everything would change and we'd have to go a different direction right doesn't seem to slow you down even a little bit though like i feel like uh and part of it is that you know i've met you and now we're like in each other's like uh sphere of being and i you know see you on social media and i see other people talking about your work but it feels like you're really coming up right now it kind of feels that way for me too like um you know, I, I've I've been doing my art um, my whole life. I've I've dabbled here and there whenever I, I had time. I was a single parent. Um, my oldest child is oh gosh, she's thirty eight now, and uh, my youngest Wait, is seven. what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, and so uh, and, and, you know, and, I'm just learning this right now, two, folks. In case you didn't tell. Yeah. In, in between those two kids, there's just like a bunch of nine kids, right? And then there's other kids that that weren't necessarily mine legally, but, you know. Sure. Could consider me their parent or whatever. And um, in this time period, um, there, there's always something. There's always something that was more important than my art. And so even if I bought supplies and started to paint... Um, or signed up for a class I had to cancel, you know, like it just never happened. Um, I think I was really pushing hard to, um, to try to repaint, to, to try to begin painting again in these recent few years. And how that came about was um, for about three and a half years, I was living in a travel van. And there's no space in there. Like you can't, I mean, you can, you have, you have to prioritize what you're bringing. Mm-hmm. There's only sure. so much space in there. Right. Mm-hmm. And my daughter was like two and a half or three when we got in there. And it, that's, there's a lot of stuff when you're that age, right? right. There's, 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 you think that her clothes are all little and everything's a little right. Like it's, it's a compact person, but these little compact people come with a lot of stuff. Sure. 
And so, um, yeah, there just wasn't a lot of space for it. And I tried painting in other people's studios. I paint really big things. Mm-hmm. So when I when I left that whole housing situation and got into an apartment, I started to collect more art supplies and, and take my art more seriously. Then the pandemic hit. And I'm literally locked in an apartment for, you know, 18 months with, with a, a kid. And we used art. She's an artist, too. She's a way better artist than I am. Um, you know, I think your, your brain is just so much more creative when you're younger. But um, we, we spent a lot of time during the pandemic doing art. And I, my art shifted from making things that I thought would sell to making things that kept me company during the pandemic. Things for me. And at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic has been horrible for most people. A lot of people lost jobs. A lot of people lost family members. Um, but there were odd little um, blessings from the pandemic. And one of those things was my capacity to slow down and focus. Um, suddenly like things could be delivered. There wasn't like a real big grocery delivery thing happening. Portland is, it's a small city. I mean, it's a city, but, um, it's not that big. And, you know, we don't have like 24 hour, a lot of 24 hour places to go to eat and stuff like that. It's not like New York, right? Um, so here I was slowed down and I started to paint things and, Hiwayawa, my tribe, started a language revitalization project. It actually, you don't just start a language revitalization project, right? Like this is this is decades in the making. Of course. But the last two years of it were during this pandemic. And um the the dictionary was being made. I got a dictionary over there, a big thick one on the shelf, but when it got to the point where um, we were close to getting that dictionary printed, um, they started to throw together language teams and I was on one of the language teams. And these language teams, basically our responsibility was, uh, here's the language and um, you know, here, here's some words. We want you to work on these words, um, you know, adding prefixes and suffixes to these words and um, they were pretty much trying to uh, figure out how they could teach this language, right? And they had a wide variety of folks. There were folks older than me and younger than me. Um, There were people who were linguists. There were people like me who, I finished college, so, you know. (laughs) Um, And uh, that was like an experiment. But for me, being able to sit with a, a stack of words and now this dictionary that I have and, and going to these language classes put me in touch with my ancestors in a way that I, I never, ever could have dreamed was possible. Um, the only thing I can even compare it to is uh, when you have your first child, like... You anticipate you're going to love this child, right? And then somebody puts this baby in your arms and 
the entire world disappears and you're sitting there just like in the stars of the universe holding this this life in your hands and the 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 amount of love that's just pouring out of your soul is immeasurable um and so this language project felt that way for me as far as connecting me and grounding me um not just in language but in culture and tradition and spirituality uh something that i think a lot of indigenous people who don't have access to their language are looking for um so yeah that's been great and that has impacted my art profoundly so the work that i started and was doing before the pandemic was something that i felt i could sell and the work that i've done since then has been uh, a reflection of my soul of my ancestry of that connection to people and place and um i never thought i would show that kind of work it was my friends who said your your new work is is amazing you should could sh- you should show this and i didn't want to cuz i felt like um it was too personal i felt like the world didn't deserve it like i didn't want to be objectified and and um all the the things that come for um indigenous and i think black and indigenous folks you know sharing their art it gets objectified it gets co-opted it gets trashed right and we still don't get into the 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 museums and into the um art galleries like if our work is in a museum it's cuz somebody dug up our ancestors and put it in the museum right um so it it wasn't something i wanted to share but it was my black and indigenous friends who kept saying this is really good stuff you you got to share this and um god bless every one of them because my work before then was really crappy <laughs> i i i look back at it and you know at the time that i created it i was like i'm proud of myself i feel like i i figured something out artistically and and i would show a piece and now i look back at my old work and i'm like i, I don't want to i don't want to show that i just want to scrub it from my website right i don't like it anymore um but they were always there behind me always encouraging me yeah this is great this is great and i suspect that some of them didn't think it was very great in the beginning um but once they started to see that new body of work they were super excited about it and, and super encouraging to me so i started to show that um the grants that i had applied for it's harsh out there uh, applying for grants as an artist um you know you you have to be you have to be known and it's hard to be known when you're a nobody like how do you get there right and if you're not known uh a lot of the grant applications i discovered were asking me to show uh previous um showings that i had like they wanted me to list my showings for the previous year sometimes they would say 3 years sometimes they would say 5 years and if you haven't been going at it for very long you don't have 5 years and if you can't get in anywhere to show your work you don't have it and so a lot of folks who are just beginning show their work in coffee shops community colleges uh community centers 
These places are, are welcoming. But when you go to apply for grants, they specifically state, do not list any shows that happened in coffee shops, community centers, or, yes, they do this, or, wow. or community colleges. And I was like, but I wasn't even a student at that college, and they showed my work. Like, that should, that should say something, right? And so it was really frustrating. I, I couldn't get my work in anywhere. That sounds really frustrating. Super frustrating. And at the same time, my work, when I'm, I'm doing these applications, um, probably wasn't up to up to par or something, right? Hmm. So I'm not going to, you know, blame it on the establishment that I couldn't get seen anywhere if my work was crap. Right. Um, so, you know, I spent probably the first two weeks of the pandemic. This was immediately, I just gotten moved into this, this beautiful apartment that had nine foot ceilings so I could work on my eight foot tall pieces of art. Right. Um, and I spent time working on that. And since everything was at a standstill, the phone's not ringing. Nobody's coming to the door. You know, this is early in the pandemic when we're all not answering our door, even if somebody is knocking, right. We're all scared. And, um, sitting with my art and working on it and then applying for grants, I've got this new body of work to show. And I ignored the whole, if you had a show that was in a community college or whatever, I listed it anyway. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to do this. Like they're either going to exclude me because I didn't follow the rules or they're going to realize, look, during the pandemic, I had five shows in the first year. Like this is during a pandemic where it's near impossible for well-known artists to have a show. People were at a standstill. And I just kept approaching and approaching and approaching different places. And, um, and the other thing, um, when you apply for a grant, they'll specifically state, do not um, list anything where you had a show with other artists. It has to be a solo show. This is insane. Really? So, yeah. So where this is super problematic is that um, the black and indigenous communities are like we're we're interconnected. We're working together. Like that's how our culture um, has survived colonialism. You and I sit here today because our communities remained, um, you know, collaborative, nurturing cultures it wasn't about independence it was about group survival that's why we're sitting here today so for a major organization that's run by you know no poc folks in the organization or very few to say well we don't want to see anything you did collaboratively that that's a real slap in the face and so you know there's a lot of my shows i couldn't list for that reason but come pandemic time i didn't care like i still was doing the same thing i i found a way in and I called a friend and I said, hey, I got a show. Like, I'm talking to these people. Do you want to do this with me? And um, in the first one, all my artist friends were like, no, I'm, I'm too scared. This is really early in the pandemic. They were really scared about even taking their stuff somewhere. I had a, a body of my work that was at City Hall that never got shown because we submitted the work and 
The pandemic shutdown happened immediately and we couldn't get our work back for months um, because the employees didn't have access to the building, right? And everything was in, back in a storage room. And so everyone was still pretty scared. So I started out and I, I did a couple of solo shows. And then as my other friends started to feel a little more comfortable, um, they started to join me in, in more shows. So all told, I think I did um, eight or nine shows since that the you know since the day the governor shut things down in Oregon, and um, like three of them were independent. Four, no, four of them were independent, and five of them would have been group shows. And group shows because I got in somewhere, and then I called my friends and I said, "Let's do this." And they're like, what an opportunity. Yeah, okay. When they were ready, they were ready. And they rolled with it. Um, yeah, that, that's that been kind of the journey for the last couple of years. And in the middle of it, I submitted a mask that I had made right before the pandemic hit. And it was made out of banana leaf. Um, I have a series of masks that I've made. And they are... Uh, clay masks and this one was made with banana leaf and I submitted it to the the Portland's um, permanent collection of art through uh, the, through rack and it got accepted right on and that was kind of um, one piece in okay I've got now all of these shows during the pandemic so I got a little bit of notice I'm also submitting work that is much higher quality work. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see where I'm going to be in five years. Like right. I, I really feel like I'm, I'm getting things artistically now because every hour of my day is, well, it's, let, let's be truthful, every hour of my day is because I have a seven-year-old, but <laughs> every hour of my day when my kid's at school or sleeping, yeah, I'm focused on my art and being able to put that kind of time and attention into anything artistically is going to improve your art. And so that's been a gift for me that the pandemic provided is having online options for learning, even though, you know, my, my travel people are, are so many miles away. Um, that opened up and time in, in front of my materials opened up um, and just pushing beyond. I wasn't going to let... Uh, the pandemic stopped me from being able to show my art, especially since I was excited about this new body of work. And I think that the fear of the pandemic slowed down enough people that I was able to kind of get into a line that didn't exist before. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Compassion, the desire to help. It's part of Portland's DNA. It's also at the heart of what Central City Concern does every day. Last year, they helped over 13,000 people experiencing or at risk for homelessness get back on track, providing health care, housing, and employment opportunities. But they can't do it alone. Go to their website at centralcityconcern.org to learn how you can be part of the solution. And we are back with Voices from the Real World. Uh, I think you mentioned three po- the three like engines of your art were uh, spirituality, uh, tradition, and culture. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? 
Um, a lot of my work, I, I think that pretty much everything I do now is a reflection of my culture. And I think that a lot of what I do now is also, a lot of what I show now is an obvious reflection of culture. I've got gourds that I, I've done that are very intricate. They're like inlaid with, with semi-precious stones and stuff like that. But I've got paintings that I have a particular one that's about, oh my gosh, this painting has been out of my hands for a year now. Um, I, I can't remember if it's five or six feet tall, um, but it's, it's called Medicine Man. And it's a, a behike, a medicine man who is in a, a, a trance. And that's hanging at the Architectural Heritage Center Museum. Um, you should go see it. It's there until, uh, oh gosh, December 24th, I think is when everything comes down. Um, and so that's like an obvious reflection of the culture. And across from that one is another one that's a diptych that has a line of, of faces. And the faces are uh, chin to forehead, four feet tall. And so there's just the faces. And there are... Um, there's two in the center of each panel. And then where the panels connect, there's half a face on each panel so that when the panel sits together, you see the full face. But if you take those panels and you flip them in the opposite direction, there's another face that comes together. So no matter which way you hang the diptych, um, it, it's fully together. And those faces are um, faces of my family. You know, that's my cousin's nose. That's my, my brother's eyes. That's my, um, my own lips and one of them. And so it's, it's a reflection of my, you know, the, the physical aspects of my family, but there's so much more to it. The, the background is very much drifting off into Haratukuma is the, the Milky Way. So you can see the background and there's just, there's a bit of light that comes into one part of the, the painting um, in the background and um, the, the faces, I, I, it's, it gets difficult to describe beyond that. You kind of have to go see it. Um, but when you do see it, it's, it's definitely a very striking piece that is absolutely a reflection of spirituality and of culture. Um, I mean, as a, as a layman and somebody who, you know, knows crap about art, uh, I think your stuff is astounding. Um, and, you. uh, I, you know, I mean that a hundred percent, um, the, the, the piece you put up for we are ceremony, um, was, uh, breathtaking, you know, Thank and, and you. everything I've ever seen, I'm just like, um, this person is, uh, like I said, on, on the come up, you know, and, and, and the work you're generating, I think, um, deserves, uh, all the attention and notice that, that it gets and will get in the future Thank for you. sure. Um, you, uh, you mentioned how you work on a, on a large scale a lot. Um, uh, what is behind that intention? You think? Yeah, I've, I've always had trouble, um, doing small drawings and small paintings. My body just wants to create something bigger. And, um, and I started to buy these really large canvases 
And when I reached that point where it was culture and spirituality that was coming from me and onto the canvas, I couldn't contain it. I could no longer contain <laughs> what was inside of me. And it became these eight foot long, four foot high canvases, or I've got a couple that are eight foot high by eight foot wide. And I just, I, I had to create that big. And another aspect of that, I think, is I'm disabled and I'm a wheelchair user and I spend probably 80% of my day in my chair. I have 20% use of my hands and I am really good at dropping things. <laughs> really good. So when I am working, the entire floor is covered in a couple layers of thick, heavy canvas drop cloths and... I have, I take a paint scraper because the, the paint scraper feels right when I, I'm using it on the canvas. The paintbrush feels difficult for me. If I take a paint scraper and I take a, 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 the self-stick bandage, sometimes it's called Coban, but it, it, the bandage sticks to itself but not your skin. So I put the paint scraper in my hand and I take the bandage and I just keep wrapping it around my hand. So now I've secured that paint scraper in my hand and I can't possibly drop it. Um, and I grab the palette that I used on my last painting and I pull back whatever plastic that I've thrown over it. And I start by throwing that paint on there. And sometimes I have no idea what I'm about to paint. I just take these colors and I put them on there. And I put them on there because I don't like to waste paint for one, right? But the funny thing is, is that paint sometimes doesn't show in the end. After all the layers, I put so many layers on these paintings with a paint scraper that you don't even see the original layers most of the time. Mm. And the original colors, I change colors halfway through the painting. But I do that, and I've got that one paint scraper. And sometimes it's in my right hand, and sometimes it's in my left hand. But I'm grabbing new color and putting the new color on, and then the next color on. And so sometimes the colors are blended, and sometimes they're not. And um, what my painting ends up being, I don't know. You know, some people say the canvas tells you. I don't necessarily think it's the canvas that, that it becomes what it wants to be. For me, I think it's the paint. And that's why those original colors don't show, and sometimes they do. Because the paint says, no, I, I need to be here. And that happens. And eventually something develops. And sometimes I try to make my painting something that <laughs> that paint just doesn't want to be. And I'll struggle with it for days. And I have gone in with black gesso and just splatted all over the canvas. Because I got so frustrated. And it was because I was trying to make it something and I fought with it for so many days that it, it no longer could be what it, it was supposed to become. And I'll go over it. And then I'll just let that sit and dry, right? I might come back to it weeks later because that's when it's dry. <laughs> right. Or, or I may get back to it sooner than that. But it ends up then, and my second go at it, it becomes what it's supposed to be. And sometimes paintings that sat for six months because I just messed it up and I didn't want to look at it anymore. And I was just, I was mad at that paint and canvas. Um, 
I'll go back at it and I'll create something new. And you could see the paint scraper marks like brush strokes underneath uh, the new painting that I put on. And those brush strokes, those, those paint scraper strokes, um, belong there. Very much belong there. So that process ended up like it didn't matter. Like maybe I was supposed to screw that up. I don't know. But it looks great. Right. right. It's interesting because uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you was about how I feel like your, uh, in your work a lot of times, the use of color almost feels like that's part of the narrative, you know, um, same as the size, you know. Uh, and, folks, these are all reasons why, like, like we will have um, representations of AC's work on, on the website, on this page. But you really do need to go uh, see them in person um, to uh, really pick up what AC is laying down. Um, because uh, they're impressive online. But then when you see it in person, you, you're like, you know what? I wasn't even getting it all. Was was my experience. I think that those multiple layers give you an opportunity to see something new each time. I have a favorite, my favorite piece is the diptych. And uh, when I, when I have it at home, I hang it above my sofa. And even in, in this, this apartment, so the ceilings are only seven feet, which kind of becomes a problem when I'm painting. But <laughs> um, I have it hanging above my sofa and it, it looks beautiful. It's a, a four foot high, eight foot long piece. And every time it comes home to me, I notice things that I, I painted this thing and I'm noticing things I didn't notice right. before, right? Right. And I think that's part of just laying down those multiple layers of, of thick paint. And I encourage people to touch my paintings, you know, provided they're dry. <laughs> you got to be careful if you're in the studio, right. but... Right. Well, it's funny because I've heard writers talk about how a lot of times the characters will dictate to them what the story is. Yes. No, I'm going to do this. And hearing that colors also do that for a visual artist. That's yes. really extraordinary. Colors are my actors, definitely. Yeah. And even, so I have a piece that's a leather self-portrait that's also at the museum. And um, it did the same thing. Like I had a box full of leather scraps that were probably, I don't know, 40 different colors. And I ended up using maybe 15 different colors to do this portrait. And that was it. Like those colors dictated what was going to happen. And all of a sudden I realized as I'm laying them out on the floor, just chunk scraps, just throwing them on the floor and throwing them on the floor that I could see a face. And I started to create this self-portrait and then I grabbed my scissors and started cutting. And um, when you cut leather, it, it's one cut. You're done. <laughs> like you cannot right. make a mistake right. cutting leather. Um, and whatever I cut, that was the piece was meant to be. And so the shapes came out right and it worked. And I put this thing together and it's, it's framed and it tells its own story. And I was there to put those pieces there. You know, I, I facilitated that, like, I don't know, the, the stage manager or, you know, somebody who's, who's putting it together, but the actors are telling their own story. Right. Uh, one last question as we, uh, get close to our time. Um, 
you were part of We Are Ceremony, um, which was uh, a very, which was a, a unique com- community pro- profile cohort, um, uh, one of a kind. It was only uh, it was a truncated schedule. It was only uh, three sessions um, for and strictly for the Black and Indigenous trans community, trans to spirit communities. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, um, first, like why that had to be so focused, and what and what you got from that, um, and how it worked for you, and like the work that you did there? Yeah, by you know by the time I met you and we were talking about this, I think we initially started talking about something a little bit different, and I had already uh, reached the end of my patience level with applying for grants that essentially excluded me because of my artistic experience, right? That was just backwards. And I realized that I had the capacity to direct my own artistic path. And in some cases, it was going to be a little bit of bulldozing. And so by the time I got to you, I was like, no, I want to do it this way. And, and thank goodness you were open to it. You're like, do what way? What are you talking about? What? And they're like, tell, tell me why you want to do this. And so I was able to say that if we were going to get um, any of my artists from, from my particular artistic group, we're informal, black and indigenous, two-spirit and transgender group. If I was going to get any of us to participate that they had to trust the the process. They weren't going to come and bear their souls to somebody that they didn't know. And if it was going to be somebody they didn't know, it better be somebody who is either uh, two-spirit or black transgender. And so you were able then to reach out to Zelos and bring them in to run this workshop. And because we set up this safe space that was incredibly nurturing to our creative process, all of us came out with something really powerful to show. And some of us chose to not share it yet or to share it immediately. Um, And that's the kind of space that we need. I needed that shutdown time of quiet that happened coincidentally because of the pandemic to be able to focus on my art and produce something from my soul. And the group of artists for We Are Ceremony needed that as well. They needed that safe space where they could create and be nurtured by others and really uh, bring out those colors inside them and be able to put it to, you know, music or canvas or whatever their particular artistic expression was. Right. And uh, it seemed like Zealous was good at conspiring all those different takes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he's, you know, the, the executive director for 10 tiny talks. And so um, that was a new program, but he had that same vision that I've had when I started the uh, black transgender indigenous two spirit artist group uh, was you know, creating that space and then breaking open these spaces for us to be able to perform um, or to showcase our work 
because we weren't getting into other spaces. And, you know, I've, I've worked for the past few years alongside Gita Lewis, who is an incredible, incredible artist. I, I so much, yeah. I so much look up to her and I, I feel so grateful whenever I can be in her presence. Um, well at all, but you know, artistically and her work is incredible and I can't understand why she's not having these wonderful shows in in big well-known spaces. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult even if you are doing your best, um, which I'm finally, I, which I finally feel like I'm doing. So having things like We Are Ceremony, having 10 Tiny Talks, um, getting into spaces that are interested in our work. I, I had a solo show at Alberta Abbey and they were interested. They're like, we, we would love to have your work here. We're, we're interested in it. And as my show was wrapping up, I said, I would love to bring in children, children's work here. And they would either be trans kids or children of trans parents. And they said, great, let's talk about that for a future show. So it's it's building that interest and Boom. getting in places that really matters to us. Fantastic. Well, AC, this has been a tremendous pleasure. And I'm so glad we were able to make it happen. Me too. Next time, hopefully, my voice will be back. And um, I look forward to seeing uh, more of your journey. And that is it for this edition of Voices from the Real World. Voices from the Real World was put together by the creative team of Jamie M. Ray, Lion Producer, Robert A. K. Gagno, Sound Engineer, Rodolfo Ortega, Composer, and was recorded at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon, which exists on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them and we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea and this is Community Profile, voices from the real world, real people telling their real stories. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Community Profile or Profile Theater, go to profiletheater.org slash communityprofile. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org slash on air, where you'll find other episodes of Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. Peace out.